All right, well, we have started a short new series. I guess I can't do that. It's gonna write David's Mighty Men in pink. Something wrong about that. <laughs> David's Mighty Men, blazing in orange there. Uh, we looked at who they were and some of the feats that they did. We're going to look at a couple of other things. It's just a short series, but they're an interesting group of people. So that's why we wanted to talk about them. Uh, it's been approaching 20 years or so that I've been a supervisor um, or some sort of leader in a group and have been responsible for other men and women. Uh, and they've worked for me since about 20 years ago. Um, different groups of people I've had over time. And I've had a lot of people talk behind my back as a supervisor, called me names. They had special little names for me. <laughs> uh, they... Probably, probably. I had several people lie straight up about things that I said or did. Um, I had people disrespect me, people lose interest in me. Uh, but once in a while, once in a while, I had a person that would pop up that was loyal, that wanted to do something, that said nice things to me in front of me and behind my back. Um, loyalty is an amazing thing. It's a really cool thing when someone is actually loyal. And what you have in David's Mighty Men is that loyalty. There's a loyalty in which these people, these men that gathered together around David, were there with him through thick and thin. They fought battles with him. They did things for him, and they began to know and understand more about David. And the more they knew about him, the more they liked him. You have those teachers probably out there who you find, and you're like, that guy's kind of on my side. I kind of like him. He actually has something intelligent to say. She actually cares about what I think, okay? And I'm going to guarantee it's probably not a lot of them. It's very few, but when you find those couple of teachers, those couple of leaders in your life, people flock to them. You'll find that we have a that that there'll be a small group of people that say that's actually kind of a neat person to be around. I like to talk with that person. I like to learn from that person. I like to do things with that person. And if he asked me to do something, I'd do it. Now you might not do what David's men did for your teachers. But last week, you remember you talked about a glass of water. You remember we talked about that? What was special about a glass of water for David's mighty men? Anybody remember? They went all the way to Bethlehem through the enemy lines of the Philistines to get a glass of water for David. And why? Why did he want it? Yeah, well, what's, what's another name for Bethlehem? The city of David. David right? <laughs> the city of David, where he was, yes, born and raised in the hills around Bethlehem. And when he thought about that cool drink of water, the taste the memories, the goodness, that that time in his life where everything was very simple, plain, and everything was laid out just so in his life. And things were good. He was a shepherd boy. He was not treated well by his family, but he knew where he was going. And he trusted in God implicitly because God helped him kill a lion one day. A bear came out to attack his sheep and he killed a bear. Okay, anybody in here kill a lion or a bear? Not yet, right? <laughs> Even if you had, it probably would have been with a gun or some other weapon. He killed it with a rock 
Okay, so pretty good. <laughs> Little better than I would ever be. And that takes some guts. A rock and a little sling, okay? Killed a lion, killed a bear. And it's very, it's a very possible thing to do, but it's a pretty scary thing to do when a lion comes at you, other than run away, right? You could You probably couldn't, or a bear, because he would just get you and, and attack you. So, but the whole thing was this. He had that glass of water in that place where he grew up and they crossed the lines and risked their lives to give him that glass of water. Why? Because they were loyal? They were loyal, yes. But, but what attracted them to David? What do we know about David? What did he do in his life? Well, I just told you one thing, right? He was a shepherd. So he's a couple things you probably get out of it. Uh, he's tough. He can he can tough the elements out, right? He probably likes animals. But there's more than that. Because there's lots of shepherds out there. Especially in David's time. Lots of shepherds. Lots of sheep. Lots of shepherds. So what was it? What do you know about David? What did David do? What's he famous for? He killed, he killed Goliath. Okay. So he killed Goliath. And who, who learned about that? Everybody right, in the whole kingdom knew about that. When they came back, and David didn't necessarily kill thousands and thousands of people in battle. But when you kill the biggest, baddest giant that all the rest of Israel is afraid of, and you're like 15, people remember that. And when he came back from battles... They'd have a big parade, marching the soldiers through. And you've probably seen that on TV, where they march soldiers through the streets, right? And they're coming back, and hey, Johnny comes marching home, and it's great. Well, when they came back, they had a little song they sang about David. David has slain tens of thousands, but Saul's only slain thousands. So, David's ten times the man that Saul is. And Saul was the king. He's just a little boy. And inside of Saul grew that spirit of hate. And inside, with that spirit of hate, Saul began to persecute David, and then try to kill David, and then chase after David. David just ran away. He didn't want to fight the king. He did not want to kill the king. In fact, he had many opportunities where he could have killed the king and he never took them. He always walked away from it. One time he cut a piece from Saul's robe while he was asleep and stole some things out of their camp. And when he came out, he said, you know, I could have killed you, Saul, but I didn't. And he held up that little piece of robe and Saul looked down and said, oh, Oh, yeah, I guess you were pretty close. You could have done that. You snuck into the camp and out of the camp without me knowing with my whole realm of bodyguards around me. And you know what? David felt bad that he even cut that piece off. He felt bad about that because he was not there to show off. And that was one thing that David was really good at for most of his life. He was not a show-off. Now, David did impressive things. And David did incredible things. And David did big things. He, he created big things. He had big parades and things like that. But what you found out about him is he was passionate. He was passionate. He was not prideful. That was what, what drew people to David. 
There is nothing worse than having a leader who is arrogant and thinks that they are awesome. Because they are not. Okay? As soon as they think they're awesome, they're not. Somebody who puts themselves in that category said, I'm pretty great. Is not a good leader. And is not that natural type of leader where people will flock to him. He may have a position where people are supposed to listen to him. But that's the kind of one where nobody really wants to follow him. David had people come to him and said, I want to follow you. Come out of the woodwork. So he was in a cave of Agilum, all right, the cave where he was hiding for some time. And he was that charismatic leader. He was a musician. He was a warrior. He was an author. He was a thinker. He was an expressive person. Really an interesting person. He wasn't so artsy they couldn't go win a battle, but he wasn't so much of a thug that he couldn't think about God. He had an interesting balance in his life, and he was able to express himself in incredible ways. Okay, We see and we still look at the Psalms, and the Psalms to this day are read as probably one of the most, most commonly read pieces of poetry across the world. Okay? He wrote half of them. He wrote half of them. All right. So let's go to 1 Samuel, chapter number 22, to see the kind of people, just refresh you, I know that you guys looked at this verse last week, but maybe don't remember uh, it, so we want to just refresh your memory before we move on. 1 Samuel, chapter number 22, Verse number 1 and 2, please. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave at Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in the distress, and everyone that was in doubt, and everyone that was discontented, discontented gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them. Okay, so he's in a cave hiding with a couple of close friends. His family learns about it, and then after his family learns about it, a whole bunch of people learn about it, and he gets three kinds of, there's 400 people, okay, 400 men, specifically it says. Now, there may have been women, uh, but typically counts were made for censuses and things, with men at this point, and so that was probably truly 400 men. Now, the kid, like I said, could have been more. They show up, and what kind of people were there? There's three things that they were. Distressed. In debt. Okay, and what does that mean? Discontent. Unhappy. Well, that sounds like a great group. <laughs> All right, let's, let's start with those people. Why do uh, you call them greedy? It's really sad. Well, just what does distressed mean? Sometimes distressed could mean that they were in pain or having trouble. Okay, and and what kind of pain? Not not necessarily like physical pain, but what kind of pain? Sometimes distressed could have mental pain and physical. Okay. Yeah, I like so con conflicted or anxious. Okay, type of people in pain. Yes, those are the type of people he got uh, in debt. We got that right. What that means is they owe somebody something, whether it was themselves, because for many, many, many centuries, even up till about a century ago. People sold, ended up selling themselves as indentured servants, which means I get something from you, but I owe you a certain amount of, of servitude, or I have to work for you for a certain length of time and to pay that back, that debt. So it could have been those type of people, all right? And 
unhappy, discontented people. They don't like the situation they're in. They don't like the family they're in. They don't like the government they're under. They don't like whatever. Maybe they don't like King Saul. Okay? Maybe they don't like the way the kingdom is going. These types of people are all gathered together. They're conflicted. So what does David offer? That's, that's what's interesting about it. What does David offer them that they can't really get anywhere else? They're looking for this. A better life, specifically. What, what's kind of opposite of this? What's opposite of anxiousness and conflicted and distressed? Relaxation. Okay, how about the word peace? Will that work? If you have peace... Okay, relaxation is, is a part of that, yep. But you have something inside of you that says, it's okay. I'm not going to battle this inside. I'm done. And there, there is something. So how about debt? What? what? Freedom. Freedom. Yes, perfect. Sometimes in debt, you also can make a lot of money. Sure it does. But at that time, if you couldn't pay your money, they'd just take you as a slave or take one of your family members or multiples until the debt could be paid. Sometimes they also put you in a debtor's prison till you pay the debt, which you can't make money in a debtor's prison to pay the debt, so your family would end up begging or stealing or doing something to try to get you out of debtor's prison. Okay? Sometimes it would be all three. Could be. It could be. And finally, unhappiness. What, it, what, what does David offer? What's the opposite of that? Okay, so I'm looking for, that's true, happiness is the opposite of unhappiness, right? But there's something that you get that gives you peace and freedom and happiness in your life. There's something that you can get, and it's, I'm going to give you a, a clue, it starts with the letter P, okay? There's something you can get that kind of washes away unhappiness. All humans need it. Without it, you are aimless in life. Purpose. Okay? So purpose is... So, in David's little cave here, he attracts these people because they look at him and when... You should be under great distress, as David should have been. The king is chasing after you, trying to kill you. He doesn't like you. Why doesn't he like you? Because of the way you are. You're kind of comfortable on your own skin, kind of trying to be something you're not. And they, he, he is just goes after him. He goes after him, he goes after him. And yet David is at peace. They watch David, and David in this very cave writes a song, a song about God, all right? And I'm not saying that he doesn't have things to be stressed about, and he talks them through, but always he goes back to God. He has peace. He is not bound by anything. He has the freedom to walk away, and that's a big freedom in this life. To set everything down and walk away. Alright? He he has no ties. And I'm not saying he doesn't have family. He has family and he has things. But he's not so bound to the things he owns and the things he has and his ideas that he can't just set them down and walk away. Because that's David. David can do that. And David has purpose in his life. God has given him these things. God shines through David and David is watched by these men, and they're, they're in wonder about him. That's, that's the thing about a real leader. A real leader attracts people like this. And so David gets 400 of these guys who are distressed and in debt and unhappy and conflicted and in pain and, and maybe angry about this or that. And, and there they are, and they all are attracted to him, and they become some of the most amazing soldiers because they 
end up getting, uh, they end up being loyal in many ways. And most of them fight for David. Okay? Most of them fight for, for David the whole, their whole career, okay? There's a couple that don't quite do as well here or there, but most of them do. So, last week you talked about three top men that he had, the three top men, and they did some amazing things. It talks about number of people that they killed and crazy things they did, all right? Three top men. And it ends up in the end um, that there's chases by these guys and, and one of them is so fast that he can outrun anybody. And basically he's outrunning the guy that's trying to kill him and in the very, very end he keeps telling him, stop it, don't, don't do this because you're going to end up dead. Don't do this. And the guy keeps chasing him and chasing him and chasing him out of anger and all of a sudden the guy pulls a spear and right behind him and the guy kills him. Kills him because he was totally in control of his all of his strength and body and conditioning. He had done it for years, and he was a soldier. He was an incredible soldier. Okay. Maybe he was still around. He probably didn't get him like a cheater or something. I don't know. I don't know. All right. So, of these top three, they're kind of the, the top, the cream of the crop. Then there's a couple more guys underneath, all right, that, that are really amazing, but not as famous as the top three, all right? One of the top three's name is Joab, and he becomes the commander of David's army, his mighty men, and then eventually his entire army when he's the king of Israel and Judah together. And Joab kind of becomes his right-hand man. He's always there giving advice. Don't do this, do this, David. Don't do this, do this. He is, absolutely. And David trusts him most of the time. Now, eventually, David does a couple of things to royally screw up his life. David really messes up in a couple different ways. And because of that, his family gets torn up Heart. His son, one of his sons, and he has many sons, but one of his sons wants to take the kingdom from David. So he, he believes he believes he is in charge. So he stages a coup. His son's name is Absalom, and he is an incredible looking young man, and it talks about how really amazing looking he is. And he has five pounds of hair on his head, okay? So it was uh, something where he grew this hair out clearly big. I don't think if you put all our hair together in this whole room that it would come out to be two pounds of hair probably. So five pounds of hair on one guy's head is a lot of hair, okay? So he kind of basically had a gigantic He had a great big head of hair and they probably took care of it, and he had servants to do things, no doubt. And he thought he was an amazing guy. So he was really nothing like David because Absalom thought he was great. David knew he was not. And David had people flock around him. Absalom had to build up a little army, and he turned it against his father and, and the army of David. And... He went right into the king's palace. He took his, his father's wives from him. All right, when David was away, he took the wives of his father and took them up on a tent on the roof. All right, slept with them all just to say, I'm in charge. He was a pretty arrogant guy. And the army of David turned on him and they all went chasing after Absalom. Now, David did not want Absalom killed because he was his son. As stupid and arrogant and dumb as he was, he was still his son. Perhaps tell the army just to capture him in a gigantic cage or something. Well, what they ended up doing 
because they, they disliked him very much and he, he was full of hate. They ended up driving him through with a whole bunch of spears. His hair got caught in a great big tree as he was riding through on a horse or on a donkey. And he was hung there. And a whole group of people went and drove spears through and killed him. When they came back, David did not go on that to chase after his son Absalom. The army didn't let him. Joab was there leading that army. And when they came back, they eventually told David about his son Absalom being killed. And David was so sad for quite a long time. He didn't want to talk to anybody. He's, oh, just, just crying about Absalom. Absalom's dead, Absalom's dead. And eventually Joab, this mighty man who had st stood by David, walked up to David and said, with all due respect, sir, we all gave our lives to protect your life from that man. We know he's your son, but if you don't get up and address this kingdom, everyone will walk away from you. They all did it for loyalty to you. So Joab had some pretty good advice at that moment in time, and David did get up because he realized that he wasn't acting like he cared about his people. Like the enemy who had gone against me, even though it was my son, the enemy meant everything to me, and all you people that fought for me all these years mean nothing. But David changed his mind at that moment and got up and went out and addressed the people and brought back uh, loyalty to the kingdom. But that was Joab's doing, saying, you got to be careful. We, we understand it's your son, but these people have given their lives to protect you from your own son. All right? It was... So David had some pretty decent advice from him. Now... Let's take a look a little bit at some of these other guys. There's a couple. 2 Samuel, chapter number 23, verse number 20 through 23. Wherever we left off, please. 20, 21, 22, and 23, please. Attained. All right. So this man, Benea, okay, we'll call him because I, that's how I'll say it. Two men that were like lions, okay, they were famous fighters. He took them out. One day he's out in some pit. And I'm assuming this lion was out there and he was protecting somebody from the lion. He goes down, there's snow out there, and though he's got the disadvantage over a lion, he kills a lion, all right, in a pit. So he's trapped down there with him, nowhere to get out, all right, and a lion can do a lot to go anywhere you can go. So it was brute force against brute force, uh, and he got him. Another time he's up there with this Egyptian who was a trained soldier with a spear. And a spear, the point of the spear is... Stand very from far away, do not get close. Right, right. Stand from far away, right? It's also possible he could have thrown it in angle or direction. Could have thrown it, right? So, so, Ben and I comes up with a stick and knocks the spear out of his hand, grabs it, and kills the guy. Okay? Which is pretty impressive, Right? I'd like to have seen that. That's an interesting thing. There's a guy that's trained with a spear to kill you, and you go up with a stick. 
and take it from him and then kill him with his own spear. I mean, that's impressive. And when David saw what this guy could do, when he saw what he could do, he put him over like his bodyguard type thing. This guy's the guy that needs to protect me. Could be. You always have that possibility. Most of these guys were very loyal through their whole life. In fact, what they did Most. was they gave training. They, they, they learned training. They learned how to fight. They put everything all together. They trained their hands, their arms, their feet, their body. Every day, these were tough, tough men. I mean, these were kind of the, the, the Navy SEAL teams of David's army. Okay, well, I'm going to send you in to do a special, special thing, and you're going to take that guy out, okay? And that's exactly the type of thing that he did with this, this bodyguard, this close 37 men, okay? The first three were that, top three, the Joab and some others. There was a couple more, and then there were 30 in which they just name them. They just go through, and this is the guy from there, and this is the guy from there. So they got their names in there. All of these guys were loyal. So what's the point of this? this? This is what's the question. Interesting that the guy was a great warrior and the guy did this and the guy did that. The, the point of this is loyalty to God. What attracts them to David? Well, we talked about some things. He has all these things that attracts them, but, but his real true qualities that people are attracted to from David are when he is like God. When he has the Holy Spirit in him. When he's writing a psalm and people read that psalm three or four thousand years later and it is as relevant to me today as it was to him back then there's something very unique about a person like that who can write like that. There's a lot of people that wrote for their time, and as time passed, eh, doesn't really fit today. But the way that David wrote his psalms were relevant to people. They were in touch with reality, and much more, they touched the Spirit of God through them. So... People see him and say, he's got something. He goes out and he fights. And he goes out and he does these things. And he killed Goliath. And that's very interesting. But this man is much more passionate about something deep inside of him than he is about almost anything else. That drives him in a deep way. If you are a leader... And if you someday get to be a leader in some position, people will watch that about you. Are you like everybody else? Or is there something unique that burns inside of you? I mean, feats of strength and things like that will all fade as time goes. Even as smart as you can be, those types of things will fade. But when God's Spirit touches a person, it brings about a loyalty that is lifelong. And that's what they knew about David. David's Spirit was touched by God's Spirit. And people said, I want a little of that to rub off on me. And so these guys went and killed 800 man, men by themselves. One guy goes out and kills 800 guys. So either... You're amazing and incredible and like an atom bomb all by yourself. Or you just got incredibly lucky or you're well trained. Or even something bigger. Alright? Even something bigger. 800 people on one? You can't even... You, you can't even swing around and kill them all. <laughs> even, if, even if you just happen to hit them all as you're going around... 800 people to one. There's something else that happens. And these men know it. These men know it. All right?
Not 800 men. Way too many for one person. Way too many. <laughs> Way too many for one person. So here's the thing. God is looking for us. God is looking for us to be attracted to him in that same way. To give over ourselves the use of our hands, our feet, our bodies, our lips, our eyes, our ears, the things that we have at our disposal and to give them over for training. Why does God keep the earth going when evil is out there? For those that do believe, for those that are righteous. But wouldn't it be better in if he just took that, us? In hopes that he could help for hopes that we could help turn them to him. There's, there is a piece of that as he wants everybody turned. He wants but everybody to choose. But what about our training? Where, if we know God, where are we headed? Not a good question. It's not. All right. <laughs> Eternity. Where are we going? If we know God, we believe in God. Heaven. heaven. Okay. How, how ready, if heaven is perfect, with absolutely no sin, nothing wrong, no evil thoughts, nothing in it, because God won't have it in there. How ready do you think you are today to go there? I don't think anyone would ever be ready to go there if you think about it. And it's true. You're right. But how ready do you feel? Like, I'm all set. I'm good to go. No one. No. Right. <laughs> no, no, pretty much not. Even right? Even there might even have unfinished business. Does it seem possible that God might be using this as a way to help discipline us? Help us to get discipline in our lives. Help us to get growth the hard things that come about in our lives, how do we react to it? How do we grow against our uh, temptations? How many of you have ever lifted weights? Of any size, if they're a pound or not. Okay, right, <laughs> okay. So how many of you have ever lifted them for any length of time, say more than a couple weeks? Not so much. Right. <laughs> no big trainers here? Okay. So I'll just tell you what happens <laughs> since you may not know it yet. Um, if you do any sort of exercise, okay, for any length of time, you start to build inside stamina. Okay. We'll say you're going to work on your bicep, right? That's it. I want my right bicep to be like Superman, okay? <laughs> you could, you could. But I'm saying we're focusing on this. And so I'm going to take this weight and I'm going to lift it. I'm going to curl it all day long. Well, until you get to about five, five curls the first day. <laughs> five curls the first day. And you're like, oh, yeah. that's it, man. I'm done. Second day, you come at it, it hurts too much to even do it again, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> but the third day, you come back, I am ready again. I'm going to do this. <laughs> Number six. Oh, not really six. Five and a half, okay? And then it hurts again, right? Because you worked five and a half reps for that thing. And you were going to do it, man. And you were going to grow. What's happening in between there? Tell me what's happening to your muscles. What's going on between? Why does day number two hurt? Because they tear. They tear. Your muscles are technically destroying your pain. Right? So, yep. Yeah, what happens is it they tear and then they rebuild. They rebuild. Well, we'll say you did that perfectly every time. And you still got five and a half reps, okay? So the idea is it still hurts after because you're pushing it to the limit. Five 
and then five and a half. And day six, I'm doing six of these reps, right? And eventually, you build up where you look back and you're like, I was such a weakling. Five reps, I couldn't even do five. I couldn't do six. I couldn't do seven. And now I can do 50 of them in a row, right? If you worked at it, your strength builds that way. That's how humans work. I don't care who you are. That's how humans work. They're muscles. So as you prepare yourself for your battles in your spiritual life, you have a temptation, maybe one, maybe two, maybe ten of them, that really get you, that really make you falter and fail. And every time you get to that thing, I can't keep my mouth shut, I can't keep my eyes off of this, I can't do this, I say stupid things, I think stupid things, and each time the temptation comes, bang, you do it every time. Okay, Whatever the temptation is, doesn't matter. The very first time that you learn to say no to that temptation, you are going to feel so weak. Like I did five reps on that. But if you continue the next day to keep going and say no again, to stop your building muscle, spiritual muscle, albeit, but muscle just the same. The growth is the same as you say no to temptations. What happens if I get up to 15 reps with that? My bicep is awesome at 15 reps, and then I don't do anything for a month. Your muscles are going to start to fail a bit. Like your strength is going to go down. It's going to turn into Your strength goes down. Now, next time I go, a month later, maybe I get eight. Maybe I get nine. Maybe I get ten reps. Technically, if you get 15 and you didn't do it for a month, you'd probably only be able to do around 12. You'd probably get down to something. Whatever it is, you're not going to be as good at it. And if you eat cruddy stuff the whole time, okay, it's going to get worse. Because you're not actually feeding your muscles what it needs. Right? So, the big thing about that is that... You have to continue if you're going to overcome temptation. And this might be for a long time in your life. But the longer you wait, the harder it will be. If you have something that you are failing at, that you are not doing well at, it will take discipline to get there. Saying no, building your muscles spiritually. That's what one of the things you learn about from these mighty men. They didn't do great things by sitting around and doing nothing. They always were out fighting, battling, doing things, building their strength. You didn't get to be the best runner through a miracle. But they also knew something more. Okay? What they knew was something more. Now, David's reign was not perfect. Okay. If you turn to chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, chapter 24, verse number 1 through 4. Read that, please. Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people, how many soever they be, an hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? Notwithstanding the king's words prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to measure the people of Israel. Alright, so here they are. David has it in his mind. Now it talks about it talks about where God is angry against Israel. Something's not right in Israel. 
typically when he's angry, they're not following, they're not they're not doing what he has asked them to do. They're probably worshiping other gods. Something is not right. And David says, you know what? One day, let's count the people. And who says don't do it? Who's in that? First couple of verses, two, three, somewhere in there. Joab. Remember him? Maybe he's one of the ones that aren't truly loyal. Oh, he's very loyal right now. He's giving him good advice again. The first time he gave him good advice, get up. Well, it's actually a little later in life. And this time he says, don't do it, David. Why do you care? God's going to make it grow. God's going to do amazing things with it. Why does Joab think it's a bad idea? Because perhaps some people who make Nope, I don't think it's actually about the number at all. Why does David want to get a number? Hmm. You know how many rich people are in Israel that believe in God and those that don't? Nope, because God probably wouldn't be angry about that. Why does he want to get a count? Because God's angry at Israel for some reason. Mm-hmm. But why does he want to get a count? What's, he, what's wrong with David taking a count? The wrong to count people? Doesn't it have to do with like pride? Like how much, like he's like, oh, look at all my people. Right? So look at the amazing things that I've done. Look at what I have. Look at my kingdom. In fact, let's go around and number the people because I'd like to just know, right? I'd like to know how good I am, how well I've done all these years. I kind of want to know what, what good things I've done here and how powerful I really am. Now, maybe he's thinking about a battle. Maybe he's thinking about something else he can do. And what he appears to be doing is having pride. And that's why Joab says, don't do this. Why do you care? Perhaps David, why do you care? Perhaps maybe he wants to know if one of these days there might be too big of a battle and he wants to know if they might end up being outnumbered or something. I think... Here's where I'm going to say no. And this is why Joab fights against him. But it says David prevailed. Anyways, David was going to have his way no matter what. But Joab gave him advice. What? Joab is the captain of his army. Wouldn't the captain of the army want to know how many people? Yeah, they should, technically. Unless if the captain of the army doesn't trust in numbers. Remember who this is. This is one of the top three of David's mighty men. What does he, what has he learned? Why did he come to David in the first place? David's not a show off. David believes in God. David beats the odds, right? David killed Goliath. He's a little kid and he kills a nine foot nine giant. Why does he beat the odds? Not because David's any stronger than the next guy. It is not. It's even is because he believed in God. God's David's God was bigger than anything in David's life. But the day that David said, I just want to count my people, God wasn't even mentioned in all that. God wasn't even mentioned. That was the problem. That was the problem. And Joab said, We've won every battle we've gone to and we've never had to count. We just trusted God. Don't do this. Yes, because of the same, because there is an old saying, strength isn't in numbers, it's in the people who believe in kind of. Well, and in this, if you put your trust in God, totally if you put your trust in God and believe in God, Joab's saying, you've never lost, David. Why are you caring about this now? What do you think you're going to get from this? And I'll tell you what he got. God brought a plague on everybody. They spent over nine months walking the country and counting the people. First of all, what a waste of time, okay? Joab did it himself with a group of men, and they walked the country for nine months, came back, gave the count to David, and all of a sudden David says, what have I done? Well, I'll tell you what you did. 
You did what I didn't tell. I told you not to do, right? You went and did it anyways, and I did it for you. And God said, I'm going to give you three choices. You're going to run from your enemies for a certain length of time. I'm going to let people get killed from them. Or I'm going to put a plague on you. And David says, I will, I will be under God. I don't want to be under man anymore. See, God, you're the only one that's merciful. If I go and fight these enemies, I know we'll lose because you're not on our side. It did the wrong thing. And so God starts a plague and people throughout the nation start dropping dead. Wow, how do I stop this? Well, for three days. He says, this is going to happen for three days. And then finally, one of one of David's right-hand men came in and said, go to, go to this place and go sacrifice to God for the nation and for you. Say you're sorry for it. So David does it, and it's the plague is stopped midway. All right? Because God for, David forgot God in that. Now, one more thing. At the end of a long list... In the previous chapter, verse number 23, there are 30 other guys. Now, there's 37 all together. We talked about some of the top guys, and we talked some other guys. And then they go down and list guys. It's this guy from here and that guy from there. Uh, a bile bond from Arbathite, okay? Wow, never heard of him before, but he's one of David's mighty men, one of the top 30 that ran this top 400, and then ultimately his whole army in the end. Of thousands. But at the very, very end, verse number 38 of chapter 23, Ira and Ithrite, okay, he's one of them, Garib and Ithrite, and Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Ever heard of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah is a very famous guy. One day, David has sent his whole army out to war. David stayed behind. Probably not a good move. Definitely not a good move on David's part. Absolutely not. He's up on the roof, and he happens to notice a naked woman bathing down below and somewhere and says, Wow, she is beautiful. Who is she? Go get her for me. All right? Commits adultery with her as the king takes her, then she's pregnant, and he finds out. And he's in trouble. Because do you know who Bathsheba, that woman that he just committed adultery with, is Uriah's wife, one of his mighty men. Perhaps he should apologize. I think he should do more than apologize at that point. <laughs> but he should have. You're right. At that moment, he should have apologized. And probably this mighty man could have killed him right then and there. If you slept with my wife. Okay? But that's not what David does. David is... David, remember, David's not thinking right because David's at home. He's not out on the, war, on the battlefield with these guys. He's thinking, I'm in trouble. i got to cover this up. So he knows Uriah is out. And where is Uriah? He's fighting on the front lines for David because he's a loyal guy, right? David, not so much today, right? Calls back Uriah from the front lines, gets him, brings him into his house, gets him good and drunk. Go home to your wife. Go stay overnight with her. He's thinking, it'll be great. No one will ever know that the baby's mine. Unless it ends up looking exactly like him. So what does Uriah do? Uriah, even though David got him drunk, knows the truth. He sent him in. He never left. And he slept in the king's doorway. He never went home to see his wife. And David finds out and says, oh, man, I'm in big trouble now. i got to get this guy to go out there. He is so loyal to me, he will not go home. 
So he gets him drunk again next night. I'm going to send him home. I'm going to talk him all up. I'm going to get him to go home. He goes and sleeps in the guard shack with the guards because he says, I can't go home and be in my home with my wife and enjoy all the things when all of my friends are out battling on the front. Wow, David's about this big now, and Uriah's the biggest man that ever walked the face of the earth, right? David's pretty scummy right now. So. Yeah, it does. So, he sends Uriah back to the battle with a sealed note from the king going to his captain. And the sealed note says, go out, go in front, fight in that front lines and retreat and leave Uriah behind. So the captain does just what King David says and they go out and they fight and Uriah is fighting with all his might and never turns around to see everybody's walking away from him. And he's the last man out there, and he's slaughtered out on the field. Not too mighty anymore, David. Not too good anymore. David made huge mistakes in his life, and he paid for them. He paid for them for many years to come in his kingdom, and he had a reputation for that. But here is what's more important, is that David still loved God. As slimy as he acted, as terrible as he did those things, I've had times where I've felt just as slimy as David. But I know because God has said, if you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes that's the only hope and promise that I know because I've messed up in my heart, in my mind, with my eyes, with my ears, with my mouth, with my hands, with my feet, and done the wrong thing. Because I didn't do a good job training and I didn't say no enough in my life. But God forgives. Some of the consequences sometimes stay behind because there's a mark left behind, but they will heal. The wounds made from sin will heal. They may have a scar left behind, but they will heal and you can be forgiven from those things. David did recover, but you remember when I told you about his son taking over the kingdom? That and a bunch of other things where his family got messed up were consequences for some of the things David did in his life, some of the bad choices. Now, don't get me wrong, David loved God with all his heart, but David was stubborn sometimes, just like me. I got that stubborn will inside of me that doesn't want to say no. When I want to say yes, when I feel like saying it, when I don't want to listen, nobody can convince me. You could say all the right things to me, and in my mind, I've already made a choice. I'm going to do something wrong. I'm convinced of it, and there's no other way out, because I'm going to get what I want right now. God does forgive. But the things that we pay for that, the anxiety, the things that we get, takes away that. It brings in unhappiness and indebtedness and stress and conflict and anxiousness and takes away purpose and freedom because we shackle ourselves to this sin. These are big lessons to learn and David's mighty men were incredible people. David was an incredible leader but he made some choices that he paid for. All right? In his life, God forgave him. And someday, praise God that God is forgiving, I will go and be able to see King David in heaven someday. And I'm not saying I'm any better than he is. I can look and read about his stuff, and I'm glad nobody wrote a book about all the things I've done wrong. Okay? Because that would not be fun for me to read. <laughs> right? Nobody would like that, right? But King David's got some of his most 
four choices written right out for everybody to read. And everybody can say, oh, look at what he did. It's so terrible. It's so bad. Yeah. It's to teach us. Some people will probably read half the book and think he was the worst man that ever lived in history. It's true. But truthfully, David, God said this. David was a man after God's own heart. So that fire that was inside of him, that passion, not prideful, but passion that he had, burned for God from very young until the day he died. Mistakes he made, things got washed away, you know, as times went. But he did learn a great deal. And God did great things through King David. God made a promise to King David and kept his promise through Christ himself. Jesus Christ was a descendant of King David because of the things that he did. His obedience to God. And yeah, he royally messed up. But he still loved God deeply. Okay? And you see that. So, if you get in those places where you think, I can't, I, I can't turn this around, you can. Takes that daily strength training, that something to do something mighty in your life and turn things around in your life takes continuous discipline in our lives. It's hard to do, but it's what will bring about great things. You will never read about mediocre people. Here's a list of people that did great things, okay? And they are mentioned in God's Word because. They followed after the passion that they saw in David for God. And they did good things with it. Well, that's David's mighty men. Incredible guys. Powerful guys. But more so looking for something. The peace, the freedom, and the purpose of following God. That's what they got from following God. All right. Thank you very much. Have a good day.